Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the early Amoraic era. The Amoraic era refers to the era of scholars and rabbis that constitute the authors of the Talmud. And our story begins after the death, after the passing of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Rabbi Judah the Prince is the last generation of Tanaim, of rabbis who authored the Mishnah. Rabbi Judah the Prince, he spearheaded and oversaw the compilation and sealing of the Mishnah. From that point forward, the Mishnah is going to be accepted by all of the Jewish communities as the final word of the first step of writing of the Oral Torah. Uh, Moreover, from that point forward, all of the scholarship that's going to be done by the great communities and the great Torah centers is going to be oriented around the Mishnah Torah and building and expanding and augmenting the Oral Torah evident in the Mishnah. The rabbis of the Mishnahite era are all the rabbis we've discussed previously, so like Hillel, Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yechai, and of course Rabbi Judah the Prince. These are the people that we have discussed over here uh, who are authors of the Mishnah Tanaim, and they are chiefly involved in the development of the Oral Torah and writing down the Mishnah, which is the laws. The Talmud, the next stage, is going to be written by uh, generations of Amoraim, of rabbis from the Talmudic era, and their job is to build upon the Mishnah, whereas the Mishnah is the laws, the Talmud is going to be everything else surrounding those laws. So like sources for the laws, examples where the laws apply, examples where the laws don't apply, exceptions, reasons for it, further analysis, explication, etc. Now the truth is, we are going to be doing, as always, you know, we touched just a sampling of the Tanoim. We spoke about seven or eight of the great rabbis of the time. Indeed, there were thousands of them who were all remarkable, each in his own right, each one of them worthy of deep analysis and focus and study. Uh, We just, of course, pitched some highlights. And the same is going to be true with regards to the next era of sages called Amorayim. Uh, This remarkable era is going to stretch for around 300 years from the sealing of the Mishnah to the sealing of the Babylonian Talmud. And tonight I want to analyze that first generation, the first era, the shift from the Mishnah to the Talmud, the shift from the Tanaim, the rabbis of the Mishnah, to the Amoraim, the rabbis of the Talmud. And we're going to look at the era in general, but more specifically, we're going to look at the important names, the great Jewish personalities that really embody, personify this shift, this change, and this turnover of the new era. So, After the death of Rabbi Judah the Prince, there's going to be a slight decline in the Jewish community in Judah. During Rabbi Judah the Prince's time, we've spoken about it, he was good friends with Antoninus, Marcus Rilis Antoninus, that provided a little interlude, a little uh, respite from Roman persecution that's going to provide the tranquility and the serenity and the peace of mind for this monumental effort of writing of the Mishnah to be done. After that time, the the hospitable Roman community ceases and there's going to be a lot more difficult times for the Jews in Israel. Remember, they don't live in Jerusalem anymore. All of them are living in the north. The Mishnah was written in the north, in the Galilee, in Tiberias. But when they still had Rabbi Judah the Prince, the, the Nasi, the Prince of Israel, along with the Sanhedrin, along with this monumental effort of writing down the Mishnah, that is always going to be the center of focus. All the rabbis, all the promising scholars from the whole world would converge upon northern Israel to join this effort. Once he passes, 
the scholars are going to spread elsewhere. No longer will they always be coalesced in the same location. They're going to move different places in Israel, and there's going to be a pivot, so to speak, to Babylon, whereas even though the Jewish community in Israel is still going to be vibrant and still going to flourish and still going to be a viable Torah center for the next several hundred years, the main center of Torah and the central leadership of Jewish life is going to be passed from Israel to Babylon, uh, to Bavel. Now, it's important to note that Babylon is not a new Jewish community. Babylon is existing already for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, Babylon was extant since 10 years before the destruction of the first temple. Nebuchadnezzar, they come in and they sweep away 10,000 of the best and brightest of the Jewish community in Judea, in Judah, in Israel. And they bring him to exile in Babylon where they establish a Jewish community. And thus when the masses of the Jews come after the destruction of the temple, they already find infrastructure that can be hospitable to Jewish life there. And over time, that community grew and flourished. And even when Ezra came 70 years later back to Israel to rebuild the temple, reestablish the community in Israel, he only had a few or relatively small amount of Jews from Babylon to join the pilgrimage to rebuild Israel. The vast majority of them opted to stay in Babylon. And thus, the Babylon community that we're going to meet here at the beginning of the third century of the Common Era, sometime between the year 210 to 250, that's a community that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, but so long as the Temple was around, and so long as the Sanhedrin was in full force, and the Masifta and the great rabbis, before the mission has been written, Israel is always going to be the center. Of course, Hillel was called Hill the Babylonian because he lived in Babel and came to Israel. And there are many other examples of rabbis that were vibrant during the Mishnaic era, during the times of the Tanaim, that came from Babylon, from Babel, to Israel. But the center was always in Israel. And now there's going to be a gradual shift from Israel, from Judah, to Babylon. Now it's important to note that the community in Babylon had several major advantages over the community in Judah. Number one, both of them were under... Roman rule. Rome, of course, the Roman Empire controlled everything, but the Rome uh, didn't really exert its muscles in Babylon. They were nominally in control of the land, but Roman rule and the the harsh Roman decrees didn't really have the same force in Babylon as it did in Israel. They had a relative degree of autonomy. They also had very strong uh, Jewish leadership, because they had the official political representation in the offices of the Etzel Ark, the Reishtralusa. Uh, so that's one advantage that they had. They weren't always living under the constant threat of annihilation because of harsh Roman edicts. But another very significant advantage was that in Babylon, they did not have hundreds of years of various different groups operating from within trying to undermine the Jewish community. If you look at the history of the Jews in Israel at the time, they had a couple of years of Hellenists, then a couple of years of Sadducees, a couple hundred years of Sadducees, and then they had the Christians, and they kind of going from one foe to another foe, not just the Romans from without, you have the Jews and the renegade Jews from within causing a lot of instability, a lot of uh, disunity and fighting, and that really destabilized the Jewish community. Whereas in Babylon, 
they did not have that. It was almost non-existent. Uh, and therefore, they were, you know, they were primed to really uh, take a, a, a major step forward. Now, for, throughout the time, there's going to be crossover. There's going to be Babylonians coming to Israel. There's going to be uh, uh, people, uh, uh, Jews from Judah, from Israel, going to Babylon. But it's interesting to note that they had like this competition existing between the two. So, for example, the Talmud tells that when the Babylonians would come to Israel, they would have their own synagogues. They didn't like, they had their own customs. These are hundred, hundreds of years old the communities. It's almost like today we have the Svarim Ashkenazim. How old is that bifurcation? That's only a thousand years old. This is 700 years already. It's, it's significant time for various different customs to develop. So the Babylonians come to Israel and they establish their own little Babylonian synagogue with their own Babylonian customs. But more, I guess more tragic would be the fact that the Babylonians would really like to intermarry amongst themselves. And the reason for that, the, the, the deep underlying reason for that is the Babylonians were very wary of the Jews living in Judea and Israel because they know there's hundreds of years of Hellenists and Sadducees and who knows who you're going to let your kid marry, who knows what their stock is, what their pedigree is. And therefore, the Talmud says that some of the Babylonians were came to study Torah by the great Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan was the leader, the paramount leader of the Jewish community in Israel. And he, all the students from all over the world flocked to the Galilee, to Rabbi Yochanan, and they want to study Torah from him, but they didn't want to marry his own daughters. Because to them, in their worldview... The people, the Babylonians wanted to only marry Babylonians. They were the highest stock. But that shows a little bit of the character of these, you know, this dual, dual coexisting communities that's really going to, um, be the story going forward. For the duration of the Amoraic era, the era of the writing of the Talmud, there's going to be two concurrent Torah centers. And there's many examples, like we said, of rabbis going back and forth. And, of course, the first thing that happens once a rabbi travels from Israel to Babylon or Babylon to Israel is they sit him down and they debrief him. They say, okay, well, what Torah is going on in Israel? What Torah is over there? What are they teaching? The Talmud is replete with episodes of when this rabbi came, he said as follows. What happened was, this rabbi shows up, all the students get up and come visit him. And they say, okay, tell us what the Torah of Israel is. And then a Babylonian rabbi goes to Israel and they quickly sit him down and say, okay, tell us what the Torah they're teaching in Babylon. So there was a interflow of, uh, of Torah and, and Jewish culture, which is one of the same, of course, between these two communities. But the balance of power and balance of influence over the Jewish world is going to gradually shift from Israel to Babylon over the course of these eras. Tonight, I want to focus on some of the pivotal characters that really got this era started. The great leaders of Israel, Judea, those names are interchangeable, the great leaders of Babylon, the various institutions that developed, and the way they set the Jewish people on a path of greatness in Torah that ultimately uh, will result in, of course, the most monumental, or maybe the second most monumental human uh, achievement and that is writing down the Talmud. Okay, so the first personality I want to talk about is someone by the name of Rav Abba Bar-Evo. If you say this name to someone who is a Talmud scholar, they probably will look at you quizzically wondering who this is, who this actually is. Now this was his name, but he's almost never called this by this name. Uh, he's actually called Rav. And it's interesting to note, just like Rabbi Judah the Prince was renamed by his peers, 
rabbi. They just called him rabbi. Rabbi Abba Bar Evo was just named Rav, rabbi, because his influence was so complete over the Jews of his time that they renamed him and they said, we don't need to say which rabbi is it. We'll just call him rabbi or Rav because he really has the effect of being the rabbi and the leader and the teacher of all of us. And this is Rav. Sometimes he's called Abba Arika. His first name was Abba. Arika means long because he was very tall and very beautiful in stature. Now, he was born in Babylon. He lived a very, very long life. He traveled to Israel to study under Rabbi Judah the prince. So he's right at this transition point. He's actually studying from and with the great scholars of his time that were Tanoim, that were authors of the Mishnah. Talmud, in fact, says that Rav is the only personality, one of the select few personalities that qualifies as both a Tana and an Amora, both an author of Mishnah and an author of Talmud, which really matters because there's a universal principle of Talmud is that they cannot argue with each other. If you're a rabbi from the Amorite era, you can you could add and you could expla- exp- explain and explicate what the Mishnah says, but you cannot disagree with it. And therefore, a common question the Talmud has is, is, how does this rabbi argue with the Mishnah? He can't argue with the Mishnah. Well, when Rav argues with the Mishnah, he can, because the Gemara says famously, Rav Tana Upalag. Rav is also like a Tana, and therefore he is entitled to argue with, uh, with, uh, with another Tana. Now, he studied under Rebbe, Rabbi Judah the Prince. He studied also under Rabbi Chia. And then when he went back to Babylon the first time, Rabbi Chia, who happened to have been his uncle, he brought him before Rabbi Judah the Prince and says, okay, he's going back to Babylon. He spent years now studying under your, under your tutelage. He's going back to Babylon. Well, what happens? A rabbi's going back to Babylon. He needs his rabbinic ordination. So he said to him, okay, uh, can he teach? He says, yeah, he can teach. Can he judge? Yeah, he can judge. This is Rabbi Judah the Prince, the venerated sage and leader of the people, uh, ordaining the Rav, who's going to be the leader of the Jews in Babylon. And he said, is he going to be allowed to permit the blemishes of a firstborn? Halacha is that a firstborn animal gets consecrated with the laws of tithing. But if that firstborn animal has a blemish, a blemish that a rabbi has to evaluate, then then that animal loses its holiness. Can he do that? Rabbi Judah the Prince says, no, this he can't do. And his whole life, this dog, Rav, that he didn't get the complete ordination from Rabbi Judah the Prince, he got like this half. He got most of it. Most of what he wanted to be allowed to do, he got not this. Now, why not? Rav happened to have been the world's expert at determining which blemish was a permissible blemish to invalidate a firstborn animal. Talmud says that he spent 18 months in a farm studying animals to become the expert. And says the Gemara, that's precisely the reason why he was ineligible to, uh, to adjudicate that. He was such an expert that his understanding dwarfed everyone else's understandings. And therefore, what's going to happen? He's going to permit something. People are not going to get it. And they will erroneously assume that he's permitted it for this reason. Because they can't fathom the depth of his reasoning. And therefore, they'll come to permit it for something that was not his reasoning. Therefore, he says, you know what, don't get involved with this. Ironically, sometimes in the area that we're best, we're most ill-suited uh, to adjudicate. Now, Rav is going to spend some time of his life bouncing back and forth. He's going back to Israel. 
uh, after Rabbi Judah the Prince dies, uh, his son, Robert Amliel, becomes the Nasi. So Rav, who's already an accomplished scholar, the, one of the leaders of Babylonian Jewry, he comes back to the son of Rabbi Judah the Prince. He says, would you maybe give me ordination to permit the first point? He says, no, 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 my dad didn't do it. I'm not doing it. Sorry. Uh, now, back to Babylon, uh, Ra, uh, the leader of the Babylonian Jewry was one of the Amorim. His name was Rav Shela. Rav uh, worked as an associate rabbi, associate Rosh Hashiva. Uh, and when he died, so there's a massive, there was a one massive institution in Babylon. It was called Neherdai. And this appears everywhere in Talmud. These, these institutions lasted for hundreds upon hundreds of years. When Rav Shela, the leader of that institution, died, there were two candidates who could have replaced him. One of them is Rav, and the other of them is Shmuel. It's called just Shmuel. Uh, now, neither one of them wanted to take the job because that would leave their fellow out in, in, you know, in the dark. So what they agreed was that Shmuel, he will head the institution of Neherdoi, where the Rosh Hashiva Rav Shela just passed, and Rav will go on to open up his own institution. So Rav goes to a city called Sura, sometimes also called Masamechasya, and this was a city that did not have Torah. It did not have, did not have Torah on many levels, and the people were very ignorant. And the Talmud describes how Rav came, he built an institution with his own hands, and eventually grew to being the dominant institution of the world. He expanded the institution. He had 1,200 permanent students, including thousands upon thousands of students that showed up for several months a year during these, uh, these conventions of Torah that would have for two months a year. All the uh, J- Babylonian Jews would look, this was the Harvard, the Harvard of Babylon was Sura, the, the, the center that Rav established in the beginning of the, of the third century, and this would last for nearly a thousand years, it would last until the uh, 10th or uh, 11th century. Now, uh, Rav on, in one neighborhood, Shmuel in the other neighborhood, he became a shiva of the other place, and they are some of the most prolific contributors to Talmud. Now, Shmuel himself was also a remarkable character. He, the, there's many examples we could talk about his piety. Uh, a, a few of them, uh, there's a great episode where he, uh, he was very fastidious to not ever accept bribes from someone that you're going to judge. Uh, like the Torah says, you can't accept the bribes. So there's a story once, he was crossing a river, and it was a little bit of a, you know, kind of a, it was a hard thing to traverse, so someone extended her hand to help him across. A few months later, the guy shows up in his court. He says, no, 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 I'm sorry. I can't judge you because I'll ha- I might show slight favoritism to you as well. In the city of Neherdoi, they had a certain custom that if the- you had a pot that you used for, for the rest of the year that may have chametz in it, you would not be allowed to use that same pot for Passover. Even if you tried to do hagali, you tried to purify it, you cannot use it. That was their, that was their custom. So the pot makers of the town of Neherdai, they say, okay, it's a month before Passover. What do we do? Let's jack up the prices. Says Shmuel, you want to jack up the prices? If you do that, I'm going to announce that from now on the customs change and people can purify their pots. And, uh, and, and, and if you're doing that, my job as a rabbi and as a leader is to not always be machmer, to be stringent when the people are going to suffer as a result. There's another example of that very similar story. Uh, during the uh, holiday of Sukkot, so you have to use uh, the four species. So the plant growers of the town, they would say, okay, let's jack up the prices of myrtle branches. Shmuel tells them, you do that, I'm going to make an official edict of the town. Everyone can use whatever branches they want, if it's new, if it's nice, if it's dry, it doesn't matter. 
and that way he kept prices at, uh, low and affordable for them. So these two great scholars, Rav and Shmuel, they appear on almost every page of Talmud. They have hundreds upon hundreds of debates in various areas of uh, of Talmud, and they really contribute massively towards the growing corpus of Talmud, of analysis of the Mishnah, that's going to eventually going to be compiled in the great Babylonian Talmud hundreds of years later, and of course the Jerusalem Talmud. That's in Babylon. In Israel, we meet another transcendental character by the name of Rabbi Yochanan, or Rav Yochanan Bar Nafcha. He's called in the Talmud just Rav Yochanan, and it's important to not be confused with the Tana of a similar name of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. If you remember Yochanan ben Zakkai, he was the one who snuck out of the camp and went to meet Vespasian uh, during the destruction of the temple. That's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was a Tana, an author of a Mishnah. This is Rabbi Yochanan, who's going to head the large institution in northern Israel once the era of Amoraim is going to be established. Now, his father died before he was born. His mother died during childbirth, so he grew up orphaned. There's a great episode about Rabbi Rabbi Yochanan when he was in utero. Talmud says that that if a pregnant woman, she has a craving on Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur, you got to fast. But if a pregnant woman's craving, it can be very dangerous, both to the mother and for the child. So what do you do if a pregnant woman has a craving on Yom Kippur? So Talmud says, you bring the woman in and you whisper into her ear, today's Yom Kippur. So you whisper into the ear, today's Yom Kippur. And the hope is that the child, the, the baby in utero, who is the impetus, who's the stimulus for this craving, he'll hear it and say, oh, it's Yom Kippur. How do I want my mom to have food? I'm, I'm going to quell the craving. That's what the Talmud says. That's the story. So Rabbi Judah the Prince, he was the leader of the community. And there's a woman and she has a craving on Yom Kippur. So they bring her into Rabbi Judah the Prince. What do we do with this woman? She says, okay, whisper into your today's Yom Kippur. They whisper into your today's Yom Kippur, and remarkably, the child quells the craving. Rabbi Judah the Prince gets all inspired, and he announces to everyone, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He quotes a verse in scripture, essentially he's indicating that this child is destined for greatness, and that child ended up being the great Rabbi Yochanan. Now, like we said, he was born and he was an orphan already. Uh, but fortunately, his parents left him a decent inheritance. But what he did, in line with the great heroes who give up everything for Torah, he had to start selling off his assets in order to pay for his family and for his Torah study. He could have gone into business, but if he went to business, Torah, what's going to be with the Torah? So the Talmud tells a great story that Rabbi Yochanan was walking with one of his students. And as they're passing by various land and uh, parcels, and so they pass by a uh, a field, and Rabbi Yochanan says, see this field? It used to be mine. But I needed the money to study Torah, so I sold it. They keep on walking a little further. You see this vineyard? It used to be mine. But I sold it because I wanted to study Torah. They walk even further, and they see an olive grove, and yet again, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan says, you see this olive grove, it was mine, I sold it because I wanted to study Torah. Eventually, he ran out of funds. And he was between a rock and a hard place. He well, what to do, he was living in great poverty, but the poverty became unbearable. He, he had to find a job to 
pay for his family. And now, at, at that time, the rabbis were very, very hesitant. Even the greatest rabbis of their times were absolutely refused to be paid for their Torah study. So that's why most of them worked on the side. So Rabbi Yochanan says, okay, he was talking to his friend, and they decided that we're, they're going to leave Torah study and find a job. So they said, let's, let's, and they quoted a verse, the verse tells us in Deuteronomy that there's a mitzvah to not be poor. And they said, okay, we have to fulfill this mitzvah, let's go find a job. So they're, they're talking about it, and they sit next to a shaky wall. And two angels appear, which, by the way, as an aside, we see like the remarkable character and the capacity for visions that these people have. So two angels appear, and Rabbi Yochanan hears them talking, and they said, see this wall? Let's push the wall down. Let's crush these people, because these people are abandoning Torah, and they're going to go waste their time becoming an accountant or a lawyer. What's going to be with the Torah? Let's destroy them right here, right now. That's what the angels are talking to each other. That's one angel suggests that. The other angel says, I don't know, Rabbi Yochanan's become a great scholar. We shouldn't smash him. That's what Rabbi Yochanan hears. So Rabbi Yochanan turns to his friend and says to him, did you hear that? He said, hear what? I hear anything. So Rabbi says, oh, if he didn't hear it, it must be it was a message intended for me. And he indeed made a decision. I'm going to go Torah, study Torah. What will be with my family? I'll manage. I'll live in great poverty, but at least I'll do what is incumbent upon me. So he returned to his studies, whereas his friend went back, went into business. Now, Rabbi Yochanan, of course, he rose the ranks, became the great leader of his time, and was appointed the head of the yeshiva. One day, he gets a visit from his old friend, the businessman. And Rabbi Yochanan tells him, you see me, I have thousands of students, look what kind of, what organization, what institution I have over here. If you would have stayed studying with me, if you would have kind of roughed it out, you too would have had this great opportunity of Torah greatness. So Ilfa, who was his, his, you know, the, that's the name of the person, he, he, he walks up and he climbs, he does it very dramatic, of course. Uh, he climbs onto a ship and he hangs a noose around his neck. And he says, announces to the crowd, I want anyone to quote me any Torah teaching and see if I don't, if I know it. If I don't know it, I'll hang myself. So they start peppering with him with questions from the crowd, and every one of them he swats away. And he's successful. And that's why that's how he survived. He was tested and he knew all the answers. And this I think shows a good lesson. You don't have to only study Torah to be a Torah expert. You could also be someone who's evolved in the world. And if your priorities are for Torah, and even when you work, you view that as something tertiary, something you just need as a means to fulfill your true ambition, which is Torah study, you too could achieve Torah greatness. But Rabbi Yochanan climbed to the absolute acme and apex and pinnacle and zenith of the Torah world. Now, he was someone whose holiness and purity was so complete that in a way similar to Moshe, his face radiated. He was beautiful. Talmud made a description of his beauty that's really striking. The Talmud says, what do you want to do? If you want to have a picture, imagery. How beautiful is Rabbi Yochanan? This is what the Talmud suggests to do. He says, take a silver goblet that's right out of the crucible. So it's fresh, the gleaming silver. And you fill it with red seeds of uh, pomegranates. And then you surround it with a bed of roses. 
and you put it between the sun and the shade and you look at it and that countenance that you'll see, that color, that striking imagery, that was the visage of Rav Yochanan. And great anecdote in the Talmud was that when the women would go to the mikvah, so the laws of Nida mandate that a woman, uh, when she's ovulating, essentially, she goes to the mikvah, and uh, that's when she is most primed to conceive. So Rabbi Yochanan would sit at the entrance of the mikvah, and he would sit there, and the idea being that all the women who walked out, what's the first thing they would see is the, is the beautiful Rabbi Yochanan, the great Torah scholar, and that way, when they have children, it's likely that that image will impact the beauty of the child. That's what the Gemara says. And the people say to him, his students say to him, uh, but wait a minute, aren't you looking at all these, aren't there all these women there before? He says, well, um, uh, I, uh, the evil eye is, uh, is powerless. It's that, I, it doesn't matter the fact that all the women are looking at me. It's not going to affect me negatively because the evil eye is powerless above him. Now his beauty is interesting because it's going to, be the cause for his, him meeting his study partner, his Torah partner. And that's another, the fourth character, uh, that we're going to discuss tonight. And that's Reish Lakish. Reish Lakish, also known, that was his nickname, uh, but he's also called Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. And he has a very strange batch story. Uh, he was a, he was a thief. He was a robber. Uh, but he was also a gladiator and also a vigilante. Uh, but he was someone of tremendous, immense physical strength. So uh, the Talmud tells that he would participate in gladiator fights. But also, he was part of a group of bandits that would kill cannibals, essentially. There were cannibals roaming the, roaming the, the land, and they would try to kidnap people and eat them. So Reish Lakish was part of a group of people that they would kill those people. And one time, he submitted himself to these to a band of cannibals. Talmud tells a story. Remarkable. And the cannibals are, okay, they had a rule. The rule was that they always gave someone a last wish. And there's two reasons given why they gave someone a last wish. Either because they wanted a be- to have atonement for killing him. Uh, some righteous cannibals there. Uh, or because they wanted, they knew that if someone died and they were all nervous, they were all tingling, they didn't, blood wouldn't settle, wouldn't sweeten their meat. So they wanted kind of to have like a juicy steak, and therefore they would always grant the last request. So Reish Lakish is captured by these people, and he takes with him a, a little bag. In the bag he put a rock, but he hid the rock in a way they can't find it. So he says, now, okay, you guys are going to eat me fine, but grant me my last wish. And my only wish is that I take this little sock and I swap you guys in the head. They're like, okay, that's your wish, that's your wish. He ties them up, he takes this rock, he smashes them with their head, and he knocks them all unconscious. And when they wake up, the guy's like, what's going on? She's like, you're smiling at me? He hits them again, he kills them all. That's what, the, that's what he used to do for fun, Reish Lakish. Uh, now, there's this dramatic encounter that he has. Now, he has nothing, nothing to do with Torah. He knows nothing about Torah uh, at all, even though as a child, he too had the privilege of seeing Rabbi Judah the Prince. He saw him, but he didn't study any Torah, for, didn't study any Torah from him. So there's a great encounter between Rabbi Yochanan, the greatest rabbi of his time, and Reish Lakish, maybe the greatest thief and rogue vigilante of his time. 
Rabbi Yochanan was bathing in the in the Jordan River, and Reish Lakish sees him from afar and assumes that this is the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. So he right away leaps across the Jordan to go to go see who this is, and obviously demonstrating his tremendous physical prowess. So Rabbi Yochanan sees this man who just jumped across, leapt clear the Jordan River, and he says to him, wow, look at your strength. And he tells him the famous words, let your strength be used for Torah. What are you doing? You're wasting your time studying Torah. So Reish Lakish responds, your beauty should be for women. He's like, you're telling me my skills are being underutilized because they should be used for Torah. Your skills are being underutilized because you're so beautiful and that should be for a woman. So Rabbi Yochanan says to him, okay, well, I have a deal. Let's split the difference here. If you commit to study Torah, I'll convince my sister, who's even more beautiful than me, to marry you. They sign off on the deal and Reish Lakis tries to jump back on the other side of the Jordan and he wasn't able to. He committed himself to Torah already, even though he hadn't even started. That already sapped some of his physical prowess and gave it over to his spiritual prowess. And indeed, he started studying Torah. First, he started with reading scripture. Then he started studying Mishnah. Then he started studying Talmud. And he eventually became a peer, an equal, and a colleague to his brother-in-law, Rabbi Yochanan. And they were at the helm of their institution. So... Rav Lakish and Rabbi they were they were peers, but the truth is Rabbi Yochanan was still was still the Rosh Hashiva, and Rosh Lakish was his assistant. So every every day Rabbi Yochanan would give a lecture in front of the masses, but before the lecture, Rabbi Lakish would study the Torah to to know it so well to be prepared for the lecture. He would review it forty times, and then after the lecture was over, he would repeat it to the masses. He was in charge. He was the greatest expert in Rabbi Yochanan's Torah that he would be the one who was nominated to repeat it over to the students, the one to hear it a second time, uh, from Reish Lakish. And indeed, the Talmud tells that when they would debate, it was uh, something to, to behold, because every teacher of Yochanan would say, Reish Lakish would find 24 questions to dispute it. He had such a tremendous grasp of Torah, he was able to respond in such a sophisticated way. Now, there's a few episodes here that are interesting to note with Rish Lakish himself. He had a few quarrels with the official leader of the time, the Nasi, who wasn't the greatest Torah scholar, but was still officially recognized uh, for his political leadership of the people. So, for example, he criticized the practice of the Nasi, of the prince of Israel, to tax the Torah scholars. He says they should have an exemption. Uh, and he also accepted gifts from people. He was someone who liked to accept gifts. And uh, and Rabbi uh, and Reish Lakish criticized him. But what really uh, sank his fate was that Reish Lakish ruled that even someone who is the political leader of the people, even the Nasi, if they misbehave, if they transgress the Torah law, they, like every other citizen, can be flogged in the Jewish court of law for their misdeeds. The Nasi, the prince, he hears what Rishlakish ruled and right away put out a decree against Rishlakish and Rishlakish had to flee. Now this Nasi, this prince, showed up to, to the institution, to the yeshiva, like with everyone else, and he sees Rabbi Yochanan, 
looking all solemn. And he says to him, why are you, why are you teaching Torah? So Rabbi Yochanan makes a, a movement with his hand, as if he's trying to clap with one hand. He says to me, look at me. Look at, I, for me to study Torah, for me to clap, I need to have Rish Lakish with me as well. I can't study without him. That's like trying to clap with one hand to study with him. He says, oh, you need him so badly, I'll let him come back. So he comes back, and when the Nasi, when he arrives back, he compliments, Rish Lakish compliments the, the Nasi by telling him, you're like the Almighty. When the Almighty took the Jews out of Egypt, he didn't use a messenger, he did it himself. When you're welcoming me back to society, you also did it yourself. So the Nasi asked him, he asked him, so tell me, why did, why did you make a decision to degrade the honor of my office? And he says to him, listen, I don't, I'm not scared of you, I'm not scared of your powers, your political powers, all of that, your connections. God's Torah is immutable. It's incontrovertible, and it's not subject to your whims, even though you're a great leader of his time. So these are the two communities. We have Rav and Shmuel in Babylon uh, establishing amazing institutions of Torah. We have Rabbi Yochanan in Israel, together assisted by his brother-in-law, Reish Lakish, and Torah really uh, flourishes in a great way. There's an interesting teaching in the Talmud regarding the following question. What happens if uh, someone, someone, you know, wants to study Torah, but he also has to get married. The question is, which one do you do? Do you study Torah and then get married? Or do you get married and then study Torah? That's the question. And Shmuel, Shmuel who lived in Babylon, he said, you first marry, first get married, and then, then you go study Torah full time. Whereas Rabbi Yochanan from Israel, he said, what do you mean? If you have a yoke on your neck, could you possibly study Torah? The point being is that a wife, that'll be a yoke on your neck. It'll, you know, dis, it'll interfere with your, your potential to study Torah completely. Therefore, he's saying, study Torah first, and then you get married. And the Gemara says that Shmuel, who was in Babylon, who ruled first get married, that's for the Babylonians. Rabbi Yochan, who was in Israel, who ruled first study Torah, that's for the Israel, the people that lived in Israel. Why? So the Talmud says that at that time, there was a trend that the Babylonians would go to Israel to study. So therefore, even though their marriage would be in conflict with Torah study, but still, because they get married, and then they go to Israel, so they're married, okay, but their wife's you know, a few hundred miles away. So there, it won't interfere. Whereas the Jews who live in Israel, so they're, they, they kind of are not away from home, therefore they should first study Torah and then get married. Uh, it does shed light on this, on this time. Everyone's trying to figure out how do we maximize Torah study. That's the only question. And it depends. For someone uh, where the conditions are going to be ripe for them to study Torah married, they should study Torah married. For someone whose conditions are, are going to be ripe to study Torah unmarried, that's what they prefer. But the bottom line is that this was an era, this was a time period where there was one goal, there was one national goal, and that was the study of Torah. And thus, depending how it's best, your situation is best suited for that goal, that's how you make your decisions. Pretty remarkable. Now, like we said, there was an interflow of students, but it's also interesting to learn about 
the remarkable relationship that the leaders of Babylon and Israel, namely Rav and Shmuel in Babylon and Rabbi Yochanan Shlakash in Israel, they had with each other. For example, the Talmud tells that there was one student who was a Babylonian who traveled, who traveled to Israel. And he comes to Israel and he says, okay, now it's your time. You have to meet the Rosh Hashiva to see if you're admitted to the institution. He sits down with Rav Yochanan. I'm sure he was quivering. I would be. If you look, we'll see some more stories about Rav Yochanan, which would uh, reinforce that. And he says to him, okay, well, who's the, who's the head of the institution in Babylon? He says, well, Abba Arika, which was one of, which was, which was Rav's nickname, right? Abba the tall one. He says, Abba Arika? Is that what you're calling him? I was there. I sat in. Under the great Rabbi Judah the Prince, I was 17 rows behind Rav. And when they would study together, Rabbi Judah the Prince and Rav, there were sparks of fire emanating from their mouths. There was such a high level of Torah study. And now you're calling him Abba Arika? And they had, we don't know what happened with that, uh, with that uh, young student, but this shows the respect that they had for each other and the, the fact that they knew each other. In fact, uh, the Talmud tells that when Rav died, so he would, the correspondence between the two was always Rabbi Yochanan in Israel would contact Rav in Babylon. But then Rav died, so he would contact Shmuel. The Talmud tells that Shmuel was disappointed with the honorifics that he was given by Rav Yochanan. Because when Rav Yochanan addressed his letters to Rav, he would say, to our rabbi in Babylon. Whereas when he wrote to Shmuel, he would write to our colleague in Babylon. So Shmuel responded, you're not calling me rabbi? I'm, I'm a rabbi. And he would send him a letter. He sent him with the next student, with the next caravan. He sent him a complete 60-year calendar. Shmuel was so adept at calculation of months that he could, on his own, in his head, just recreate a whole calendar for 60 years of calculations of the lunar and solar inter, you know, interconnectivity of those two and the complex mathematics behind that. He's like, look look at me. Look what I could deliver. Biochan sends back, sorry, I'm not impressed. Then he says, okay, you're not impressed? Next caravan, he sends 13 camels laden with questions. Basically, he piled up questions, you know, sky high, put them all on camels, and sent it there, and then finally says, okay, I'll call you rabbi. And uh, for the ensuing conversations, he would indeed call him rabbi. And there's another remarkable story. This is an interesting. So if you thought some crazy stories, uh, wait, wait, you know, wait till you hear this. The story goes in Babylon, there was uh, a student of Rav whose name was Rav Kahana. And the halacha is that an informer, someone who's an informer on the government, is someone that you're actually allowed to execute extrajudicially. Allah is that if certainly at that time, if someone was in, if, if someone went to the government and says, "Oh, see this guy, he's evading taxes," so that would be a death sentence on the person because they would go and hit him and beat him until he revealed where his money was, whether he had it or not. So Allah was if someone is a, is threatening to go tell the government even about someone else's financial misdeeds or financial abilities. That essentially meant that this person, this perpetrator, is trying to kill the victim, and because they're trying to kill someone else who's innocent, they themselves can be killed. So Talmud tells a story that this one person came to Rav and said to him, I am going to tell about some other person's hay. He has stockpiles of hay, he has valuable assets, I'm going to go tell the government. 
So Rav says, don't do it, don't do it, you're not allowed to do it. He says, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. Rav Kahana's there, he sees what's happening. He punches the guy in his face, he dislocates his neck and kills him. Right there, right, right there, right now. So Rav says, you did the right thing. But the local authorities are going to try to find who killed them. They're going to come after you. You did everything that's correct. But because it's dangerous for you to stay here, go to Israel. And go to Rav Yochanan. Okay. But when you go to Rav Yochanan to study Torah by him, you can't ask any questions for seven years. And the reason why he did that is because he punished him because even though he made the right decision in knocking out the informer, he still should have asked his teacher before he did it. He acted in front of his teacher in an imperfect manner because he didn't wait to ask his teacher what to do. And the halacha is, you have a a teacher, you have a rabbi there, you don't take the initiative without them giving you the go-ahead. Seven years, be quiet, that's it. If Kahana gets in the caravan, travels all the way to Israel, he arrives to Tiberias, to the Galilee, and he gets there right after the lecture is done. And all the students are milling around and everyone's gathering around Reish Lakish, who's going to tell over the lesson, tell over the lecture. And he's there and he says to himself, listen, you know, I'm allowed to respond to Reish Lakish and to the other people here, just not to Rav Yochanan. So he starts talking to all the people and hearing what's going on and he starts throwing questions and they're like, whoa, where did this guy come from? So they go tell a message to Rish Lakish. There's a new star in town. His name is Rav Kahana and he came from Babylon and he's, you know, he's just the hero. The famous words of the Talmud says, Ari Alamibavel, a lion ascended from Babylon. There's a new genius Torah scholar amongst us. Next day, they're like, okay, let's hear what this. Finally, he's there for the lecture of Rabbi Yochanan himself. They put him in the front seat. And Rabbi Yochanan starts giving a lecture. And he knows his rules. He can't say anything. He's quiet. So he says one lecture. He says another lecture. And the guy's just there. He's not answering and asking questions. So he says, okay, you were here on the front line? Get all the way to the back. And he demotes them to the very last row after seven other rows. So Rav Kahana says, okay, I did my penitence, right? Rav told me to be quiet for seven years, but the fact that I was demoted seven rows, that should cover it. So now I'm going to say whatever I want. So Rabbi Yochanan gives us, says, says, and he starts throwing questions, peppering questions from the end of the room. And every time he says, Rabbi Yochanan says something, he disproves him. And Rabbi Yochanan was a very old sage. He's sitting on seven rows of carpets, and every time he is disproven by his student, his new student, Rav Kahana, he dead, he throws one of them away, and eventually sitting on the floor. And Rabbi Yochanan's there sitting on the floor, and he's been defeated now by this great Babylonian Torah genius. And he's like, I want to see what this person looks like. Now, why can he look at it? So the Talmud describes, Rabbi Yochanan was really old, and he had big furry eyebrows that were covering his eyes. He had a hard time seeing. So he calls the students, and they bring a silver spoon, and they flip open his eyebrows to look at Rav Kahana. And Rav Kahana had a cleft lip. So it looked like he was smirking. So Rabbi Yochanan sees this guy who defeated him in Torah, and it looks like he's smirking at him. So he's like, what's the deal? And right away Rav Kahana dies. He made Rav Yochanan upset. He dies on the spot. And they bury him. And the next day, Rabbi Yochanan tells the rest of the students, did you see this Babylonian who's making a joke out of me? Look at his face. He was smirking at me. And they say to him, no, 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 no. That's the way he always looks. He says, oh my God, what did I just do? <laughs> what did I do? I just killed an innocent man. 
So he goes to the grave. And he gets to the grave, and he sees that there's a serpent surrounding the grave. And the serpent is surrounding the grave in a way that its, uh, its tail is in its mouth. So it's making a complete circle, not letting him enter. So he says to the serpent, I want to go visit my student, Rav Kahana. Serpent doesn't move. I want to go visit my colleague. We're equals. Serpent doesn't budge. I want to visit my teacher, Rav Kahana. The snake slithers away. Rabbi Yochanan gets to the grave. He starts praying. Miracle of all miracles. He's able to resurrect Rav Kahana. He resurrects him and they start having a conversation. It's unbelievable, I know. But these were, these people were absolute giants. They, you know, they, they could resurrect people, no problem. Split the sea, no problem. And he has a conversation with Rav Kahana. And Rav Kahana is like, come back with me to the, to the yeshiva. I need more people like you. Rav Kahana's like, I don't think so. I had a bad experience round one. Unless you can promise me that you'll never cause me to die by getting upset at me, I'm not coming back. So he says to them, well, I cannot promise that. And they have a, a very long conversation talking about various Torah, Torah subjects. Rabbi Yochanan finishes the story and says, the Babylonians, they're greater Torah scholars than us. And indeed, Rav Kahana ultimately ended up going back to Babylon. There's a nice epilogue to that story. Rav Kahana, after he died and came back, uh, he was approached by some mockers. Like, oh, well, well, when you were dead for that couple of hours, what did you see? So he says, I saw that you were going to die. Indeed, the guy died. <laughs> the next day, someone else asked him the same thing. Well, what do you see? Some, some smart aleck came to him and says, so Rav Kahana's like, oh my gosh, these people are all asking the same question. I don't want to kill all the people of, of, of Israel. I'm going to head back to Babylon, which he did. Now, there's another interesting story here about the death of Rish Lakish. Rish Lakish became a great Torah sage. Uh, but they had a various matter of Torah, interesting matter of Torah that came before him, his the yeshiva, regarding the priming for impurity of a weapon. Halacha is that if, if, if you have a vessel, if you have a, uh, any item, any utensil, it has to be finished before it can become impure. So the, the question that the Gemara entertains, what about all these various weapons, these knives and axes and whatnot, when are they finished? Like When are they usable and then they can become impure? So Reish Lakish, he gets up and he says, he says uh, his answer, when, when you scrub them in the water. So they say to him, oh, you're the expert, because you used to be the thief, you used to use these, you're the expert. And Rish Lakish is absolutely dismayed. He's like, I left that world. What did I gain? You know, I was a thief, and now they're still calling me a thief. What, what, how did I possibly improve my situation? So Rabbi Yochanan says, what? How did you improve your situation? I took you and I brought you onto the canopy of the Shekhinah. So as a result of that, there was acrimony and disappointment, and both of them fell ill, and indeed both of them died as a result of their illness that they had because of this fight that they had with each other. Uh, but this, I think, these episodes, these I selected some out of hundreds upon hundreds of stories and certainly thousands upon thousands of teachings from the Talmud, but this shows, I think, number one, their great prowess, A, in Torah matters, but even in matters of of greatness associated with miracle doers. These people had Torah 
to such a degree that just like the Torah precedes the world, the Torah has mastery. The Torah is higher in the pecking order over nature. They too, because they incorporated Torah within them, they mastered nature. If Rabbi Yochan was upset at you, you would die because he is higher than the rules of nature say you're alive. But Rabbi Yochanan says, I don't know why this guy is alive. You're dead. That's just the way it is. And the stories about all these people that they had these, you know, these are stories. This is, these were giants that, uh, that these episodes really happened to. This is even a modern day story. I'll say it very quickly. Uh, that happened in the 1970s. The, the Mishnah tells us that a person should always warm himself up with the fire of the Torah scholars. But be careful not to get too close, to not get singed, to not get burned by their coals. Why? Because their bite is the bite of a fox, their sting is the sting of a scorpion, and their hiss is the hiss of a snake. That's what the Mishnah says in Chapters of the Fathers. It means that be careful not to take off the rabbis, the Torah scholars, because they can be very dangerous. That's, I think, that would explain a lot of these episodes. But there's a great story from the 1970s with Rabbi Avad Yosef, who died in 2013, someone who lived in modern times. Now, he was the chief rabbi of Israel at the time, and this is in the aftermath of this of the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur War, there was, it was the worst war in Israel's history. They had sent uh, thousands, unfortunately, thousands of soldiers died during the war, but also many, th- many hundreds, certainly, were missing in action. And the halacha is, unless you have a dead body, a corpse, the wife cannot remarry, because who knows... What, who knows if the person is actually dead? And Rabbi Avadi Yosef, he accepted upon himself the task of interviewing soldiers and finding all of information that he possibly could to try to permit as many women to remarry. So there was a reporter, a woman reporter, who concocted a whole story to try to embarrass the great rabbi. And she made up a story that her husband was in war and she got witnesses and, they, he, and he's missing. And she pre- presents all the information to Rabbi Avadi and she says to him, can, can I remarry? And he says to her, yes, based upon your evidence. She's so excited. She has the greatest scoop. She found the rabbis are fraud. She quickly goes out. She finds a public telephone. She calls the office of her newspaper. She's so excited to uh, be able to have this story that's going to be the scandal of all scandals. It's going to totally uh, destroy the reputation of the great rabbi. And she calls the office like, I, I can't believe I'm speaking to you. Do you know what happened? She's like, well, what are you talking about? I don't know what happened. Well, your husband died in a car accident. He's dead. Rabbi Vadi says, you're allowed to remarry. Your husband's dead. And her husband, dead. That's it. And that's a story that happened in modern times. Certainly the great rabbis of yesteryear were capable of that. If you, 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 you know, you try to play games with them. You try to say, oh, what did you see in the heavens? You, you don't really have a long lifespan, uh, awaiting, uh, awaiting you. Now these scholars, highlight the pages of the Talmud. They're prolific teachers. Rav in Babylon, he is mentioned more than 1,500 times in Babylonian Talmud. He is quoted by 167 of his students in the Talmud. 167 <coughs> different teachers quoted him. Amar Rav Yehudah Amar Rav. Rav Yehudah said the name of Rav. Rav Yehudah said the name of Rav. All these ra- rabbis who taught over the teaching of Rav. Rav Yochanan, he is mentioned, his name is mentioned more than 1,700 times in Babylonian Talmud. He is the chief architect of the Jerusalem Talmud. He uh, has 170 Amorayim that quoted him. These really, uh, these people established 
the Torah that's going to make up the, the Talmud. They lived tragic lives. Shmuel had, his sons died, his daughters were taken in captivity. Rabbi Yochanan had an exceedingly, inordinately tragic life himself. He had 10 sons that died in his lifetime. And the Talmud says that when he would go to try to comfort someone who's mourning, he would carry the tooth, the, the tooth of his, of his last son that died. And he said to him, I, I feel your pain. I too know what it's like to suffer tragedy. Of course, these are just small flavors of their character, but the monumental Torah contributions of these giants are absolutely amazing beyond fathoming. These names appear on virtually every page of the Talmud, but they also set up multi-generations of Torah excellence, both in Israel and in Babylon. And indeed, they developed the infrastructure that's going to be so vital to the completion of the Talmud and indeed the perpetuation of the Jewish communities.